Just the word dandy conjures up images of the very best dressed among history's men of style. A perfectly tailored suit, brilliantly shined shoes, a glint of gold from elegant cufflinks, and a cravat or tie of the finest fabric. But is that all? Just about a year ago, author and custom designer Nathaniel Lee Adams joined me for a look at some of history's men of style that are traditionally thought of as dandies, beginning with Beau Brummel and ending with the great Oscar Wilde. In our conversation, it became clear that being a dandy went far beyond just an elegance of dress and what is seen on the outside. In fact, Oscar Wilde once said, one should either be a work of art or wear a work of art. Dandyism, in fact, could contain elements of decadence and narcissism, to be sure, but also revolution and social change and reform. In this brand new episode, Natty returns to the show to take us beyond the world of Wilde and into the early 20th century to have a look at another assortment of dandies whose claims to the title go far deeper into personality along with, of course, polish and panache. Hello, I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where every other week we delve into worlds light and dark of America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. As we move into the 20th century, dandyism expands its influence into art, architecture, including ever-widening social cultures, and of course, incorporates the effects of World War I. As we continue on in our exploration of dandies and dandyism, I could not be more honored to have Natty Adams join me for another show. Nathaniel Adams is an author, designer, journalist, and maker of fine custom clothing. He holds a bachelor's degree from New York University, where he created his own major studying literature and the history of dandyism and fashion subcultures. He is the co-author of two books on men's style with the photographer Rose Callahan, I Am Dandy, The Return of the Elegant Gentleman, and We Are Dandy, The Elegant Gentleman Around the World. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, The Daily Beast, Rolling Stone, The Rake, Harper's Bazaar, The Chap, and Pipes and Tobacco magazine, among other publications. He has spoken on dandyism and menswear at the Fashion Institute of Technology, Pratt Institute, Parsons School of Design, and New York University. Natty, I am so honored to have you back on The Gilded Gentleman today. My listeners were so fascinated with all of your social commentary and real insight below the surface into who dandies really are and were and have been and maybe today. I'm so glad you're here back across the table for me. Thank you so much for having me back. I'm, uh, I'm honored. There's so much more to keep talking about, <laughs> don't you think? Oh, yeah. And Natty, I must share with my listeners that you are wearing just a beautiful custom suit that you designed, which is another part of your work, bringing the world of fine custom tailoring and clothing to gentlemen of style of today. So you design for clients as well as, right, you sort of do it all, right? Yeah, I design for clients, not and not just gentlemen. I do clothing for all genders and every everybody. And I've been doing it for about five years now with my own company, but um, I've been in the business for a long time. Well, you are indeed a gentleman of style, and we will talk Thank more you. about that. But it's so exciting to celebrate this particular moment, and it's probably hard, I'm going to guess, hard for you to believe that this is actually the 10th anniversary of the publication of your book, I Am Dandy. And I do hope listeners have had the chance to listen to our first show from last year, Dandy's Gentlemen of Style from the 19th century to today. But Natty, can you just give us a little refresher on how you define a dandy? Yeah, the definition of dandy is something that 
Rose Callahan, the photographer, and I, who did the book together, we did two books, as you said earlier. That definition evolved a little bit over time. I think we were quite, uh, at first, we didn't really know how to put it into words. So it was sort of a, we know it when we see it kind of thing, because we'd become such expert dandyologists. But eventually, we had met all of these men who had pretty diverse styles. And we were thinking, well, we know that all of these people are dandies. But what is it that they have in common? Even though some of them have full faces of makeup and some of them are very conservative in their style, what is it? What is the, the one through line here? And we decided that it was, what we then said was that it was a man who is obsessed with elegance, is the, the definition of a dandy. In the 10 years since that first book came out, a lot of the thinking about how gendered dandyism is has become, it's, that's become a much bigger conversation. So that's, that's a whole nother thing. But yeah, at the time, our definition was a man who is obsessed with elegance. And how would you define it now? I'd be more inclined to say maybe a, a mask or masculine person who's obsessed with elegance. Maybe someone obsessed with masculine elegance. That, that's probably the way to put it. Aha. Uh-huh. Well, dandyism at its best seems to be a blending of, shall we say, sartorial style as well as attitude. So, Natty, percentage-wise... What percentage is clothing and outward appearance, and what percent is attitude in making up a dandy? <laughs> it's a great question, and I, I have I've never actually been asked that one. Obviously, it, it would it would vary a little bit from person to person, but you meet some people, and they're sort of lowercase d dandies because they're just dapper, well dressed men, and they can look great. And then you meet other people, and you're like, well, this person is eccentric, and maybe a little bit decadent and weird, and they live their life in a very artful way. And that's when you say, okay, well, this person's a capital D dandy. So the percentage, I don't know. I mean, I I think the ideal would be to have a 50-50, but I think that's pretty rare. What's so interesting, and will certainly come up as we get into our little selection of dandies today, but it's really about breaking some norms. It's really about going against tradition. It's really about reinventing some of the classic thoughts about things, which is sort of ironic in a way because some people think dandyism is just being the polished perfect person yeah and that's part of it right but it, it's yeah. not the whole thing it's interesting it definitely it, it kind of cuts both ways in that it's it, it's usually a reaction to the status quo and in some cases that means being more outrageous or flamboyant and in other cases it means becoming more conservative but it's always a, a reaction to or a, a kicking up against whatever the mainstream is doing. Now, our last show actually traced the notion of dandyism from really the very early 19th century with Beau Brummel over to France. We had a little look at Charles Baudelaire, the decadent dandy, and we ended with Oscar Wilde, the truly great Oscar Wilde, probably the most famous dandy, or at least the most famous man called a dandy. So post- We'll see see what happens after after I'm gone. Well, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) So post-Wild is sort of where we pick up with this show, and we're going to go further into the early 20th century, which is incredibly rich with people that can be called dandies. Can you talk a little bit about where dandyism was with Wild at the end of his life, and then what happened following Wild's death? I mean, was there a new dandy emerging at this point? There's some continuity, which we'll get we'll get into, between that sort of naughty 90s uh, decadence and that whole world and then the early 20th century dandies. But there is also a break there because Wilde's persecution and his downfall from being the most popular and celebrated man in London to being exiled and despised um, was a huge kind of blow to dandies in general. Suddenly, anyone who was elegant in that way, any man who was elegant in that way was uh, suspect of being perverse. You know, it suddenly, oh, this person might be a homosexual because they're part of that whole wild world. So dandyism didn't exactly go underground, but particularly in England, it was suddenly, it, was, it wasn't a safe thing to be, to be associated with that. So that's, that's the kind of break post-wild, is that dandyism became tainted with this scandal. Now, As we sort of leave the turn of the century and we get closer to 1914, of course, do you feel that World War I had an influence on dandyism? Certainly in our list that we'll talk about today, there are certainly a couple of dandies that it could be said were influenced by the war. But could you 
really offer any general thoughts on how the war changed dandyism? Yeah, absolutely. There's, I mean, it's a, that's a huge question. It's a very good one. I mean, the, the the First World War had a much bigger effect on dandyism than the Second did. I think that a lot of a lot of the men we'll talk about today, their lives were touched by the the war, whether they participated in it or whether they, you know, ran away from the draft in some of these cases. But I think the the big thing that happened was after the war, there had been such a culling of beautiful young men by this horrible carnage. And the new generation that came up after that, whose brothers, older brothers had often been slaughtered in the prime of their youth, they looked back towards Nandies and they wanted to find some something beautiful again. This whole generation had been completely, this whole generation of men specifically had been just decimated in Europe. And for a lot of the younger guys who came up after that, in what was the exciting time of the 1920s, that was a, a reason to re-examine things like aestheticism, dandyism, maybe less decadence and more a desire for beauty and elegance after after such horrors. You know, it's so interesting because I think that really permeated everything, certainly dandyism, but that search for beauty simply because so much of Europe saw yeah. Things that were beautiful and beautiful aesthetic yeah. destroyed. And it's it's also when you see the kind of art that was happening before the war was getting experimental, right? It was Dadaism. It was uh, things like that. It was futurism. It was these very kind of radical ideas. And I think after the war, there was maybe a, yeah more of a, a kind of push towards a different kind of, of beauty and an appreciation of beauty. Now... Natty, I have loved going back and forth with you in all our conversations discussing the dandies that we're going to talk about on the show. And I love I truly love the list that you that you gave me that we ultimately came up with because it covers such really an incredible diversity and fascination. So I'm I'm dying to dive in. So we're going to begin with a truly fascinating man of style, to be sure. And this was the writer and caricaturist, the Englishman Max Beerbaum. Now, in our conversation leading up to the show, you actually shared with me how important he was as we transition into this early 20th century. Can you talk a little bit about, so who was Max Beerbaum and what did he do and why was he important? Yeah, so Max Beerbaum really is the person who bridges that gap between the world of Oscar Wilde and then the later world of the what were called the bright young people in England post the First World War. He, he, lived, he lived longer than most dandies tend to do because he wasn't a very decadent and uh, self-destructive kind of guy. He was pretty mild-mannered. He, he was a novelist. Uh, like you said, he was a famous caricaturist. Uh, he, did, does absolutely, he did absolutely beautiful ink and, and watercolor caricatures of every one of his time. His older brother was the very famous actor, Herbert Beerbaum Tree, and he was part of Wild Set. He sort of knew all those guys. He knew Aubrey Beardsley. Uh, he was friends with all of them, Whistler, but his his kind of persona, as opposed to Wilde, who was, you know, a bit outrageous, Whistler, who was sort of famously mean, Max was a kind of laid back. He would gently satirize people. His famous, his one his one novel is uh, Zulika Dobson, which is one of the first of what became a, a, an, a you know, a classic genre of English uh, or British literature, which is the Oxford-Cambridge satire. But he was, um, you know, very elegant, polished. He was not a homosexual, so he wasn't, I, I don't think he got the same kind of, you know, opprobrium that someone like Aubrey Beardsley or Oscar Wilde ended up getting. And he wasn't persecuted for that. He was a little bit more acceptable to mainstream society because he was married and pretty straight-laced. But he was hilarious and he had fantastic taste. And he ended up moving to Italy, to Ravenna, I believe, and... He became a sort of grand old man of dandyism. And these young guys, for years to come, decades after, would come and visit him there and talk to him. And they'd say, oh, I went and saw Max while I was in Italy. Um, and th this is, you know, everyone up to Cecil Beaton and uh, Harold Acton and those kind of aesthetes of the, of the 1920s. And he lived pretty long. He lived to the point where at some, I think maybe even, maybe it was during the Second World War. I'm not 100% sure about that. But he was eventually invited back to speak on BBC Radio about his life in the late 90s and about those wild days and to read some of the things he'd written. And he became a sort of national treasure, uh, even though he 
didn't live in England anymore, but he was he was like a a relic from that time. So we're starting to get a dandy that maybe doesn't really have the decadence that was associated with many at the end of the 19th century, not just wild. And we're getting someone that's a little a little calmer, but yeah. still yeah. curious. Exactly. Yeah. He's still, still an eccentric guy. And he's still, I mean, he obviously found, I think probably post wild, he found England to be too constraining an environment as many English dandies from Brummel on down did and or or Byron or any of the, any number of these people who felt like English society in the 19th century was too stifling and they needed to be somewhere where they could live a live their life more freely and they all went to Italy they either went to France <laughs> or Italy yeah and also probably where they could live more cheaply I think well probably right and with that Natty and I are going to take a short break but we'll be back because there is so much more to the story And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, and we are back to continue our story. So now we actually have an American to talk about, one of two Americans we're actually going to talk about in our discussion today. And this is someone I did not know at all. And he came up in our early discussions of last year's show. And unfortunately, we just couldn't include him because of the time. But this is a Vanderberry wall. And boy, I was really fascinated with him because he was connected to both Europe and France. He lived at the height of the Gilded Age and the Belle Epoque. But can you really kind of talk a little bit about who this gentleman, Evander Berrywall, was? Yeah, Evander Berrywall is one of my favorite lesser known dandies. And it's partly because he's lesser known. And also I like him because he's an American dandy at that time, which is kind of rare. You don't at least the, not very many of them got famous. And he was famous in his time. Uh, and he lived in New York uh, at the height of the Gilded Age. I actually don't know if he had any wealth of his own, but he kept marrying wealthy women and he boasted that he'd worked his way through two or three fortunes. And he was known as the king of the dudes. Dude, the word used to mean kind of dandy. Um, the expression dude ranch was the idea that someone fancy from the city would go out to a ranch and pretend to be a cowboy. So it's funny now that, you know, dude is something that people say to each other commonly, but dude originally meant a well-dressed guy. You were duded up. And Evanderberry Wall was just famously one of the best dressed guys or, or one of the most outrageously dressed guys in the sort of New York East Coast social aristocracy. And he would wear these loud check suits and tall hats and at one point he got into a feud with another guy and they were showing up at parties to and trying to sort of outdress each other and and how crazy they were they looked and eventually Evanderberry Wall showed up with like thigh high patent leather boots which is and this would have been like 1900 or something this was a crazy thing to wear and uh, after that he was known as king of the dudes he had 5000 neckties and he was part of that crowd that would have crazy just crazy parties, crazy lives. He would go to um, illegal boxing matches in Fort Tryon Park, where the cloisters now are, where they would drive those giant old cars and watch people box by the headlights. So he lived this kind of wild life, and he was, like many dandies, he had a sort of little bit of scandal about him. He was he owed his tailors a lot of money, and his tailors sued him, took him to court, and someone said he'd never worked a day in his life. He stood up and said, oh, no, actually, I, I take you know great offense at that because I go around and tell people all about my favorite champagne and they give me money for that. And then he went on in court to start talking about his favorite champagne in the hopes that he'd get more money. And the judge told him to be quiet. So he was, yeah, he was kind of a funny, weird guy. He didn't produce anything other than his life, you know, which is a very classic dandy thing to do. I'm still somewhere back on those thigh-high leather boots. I, I just am visualizing, you know. But now, one of the things about Evanderberry Wall is that it was said that he was the one that really invented the tuxedo. So, Natty, can you sort of set all this record straight? Did he invent the tuxedo? Or <laughs> if he didn't, who did? Or how did this all come to be? I can't set the record straight. I Because it, this has been such a... I mean, this is like a 100-year-old debate now. He claimed... what. 
what was known for a fact is that the tailor Henry Poole on Savile Row made the first tuxedo. And the idea is that at some point, someone just cut the tails off a tailcoat. And Evanderbury Wall claimed that it was his idea and that it was he who wore it to Tuxedo Park, New York, which was a resort of the Gilded Age, and caused such a commotion there by showing up in this short jacket with no tails that he was asked to leave. So he he was one of the people who claimed that. I, I don't actually know... I don't I don't recall who the other people were, but there have been a few claimants to that title of having invented the tuxedo. Henry Poole, the tailor, should get credit for having made it. But Evanderbury Wall liked to say that that was I think he liked to think that that was his claim to fame rather than stiffing his tailors on on their bill <laughs> and talking about champagne <laughs> and talking about champagne. Now, the next dandy is really a choice I found so incredibly interesting on on so many levels. Uh, another American. And this is Jack Johnson. And he has a profile that actually may surprise some listeners because he was a boxer. Oh, Natty, talk about Jack. Yeah. So Jack Johnson is a fascinating character when, I mean, he's a fascinating character in his own right as a person. But when looked at as a dandy, he's really interesting. And first, the first thing to say is that, oddly enough, since the Regency period, pugilism was the dandy sport. Um, not that lots of dandies boxed themselves, but in the Regency period in England, it was one of the most popular sports and the dandies would go and bet on it all the time. I don't know if there's something there about these elegant men wanting to see some sort, some sort of brutality or something, but dandies loved boxing. And I think to this day, you'll see boxers and fighters are kind of famously flamboyant um, and they have been for a long time. I mean, usually, and usually flamboyant and a little bit kind of vulgar with their showing of, of their wealth and, and this kind of stuff. The MMA champion, Conor McGregor, famously wears like suits with profanity, I think, stitched into the pinstripes of them and stuff. I mean, a lot of, a lot of boxers and fighters have dressed up. But Jack Johnson was, was one of the first examples, and he was the first black heavyweight champion. Uh, he was from Galveston, Texas, and he was a really remarkable person who kind of lived, he lived by his wits in a lot of ways. He, he, he left home and got to New York by rail and like riding the boxcars and stuff. And he got there and he didn't have any money. And uh, he threatened to throw himself off the boat that he was on uh, because he had not a penny in the world. And <laughs> everyone there just started giving him money and stuff. But he, he started fighting in New York. They used to do these horrible things called battle royales where they would take, they would get like, seven or eight black men and blindfold them and make them just kind of fight each other in a pit. It was a hideous thing that they used to, that wealthy white people would do and they'd bet on it. And that's how Jack Johnson started fighting. Eventually, people recognized that he was something special in the sport and he became a legitimate boxer. And he ha it developed his own style of boxing that ended up becoming what was standard because he would dance around the ring he could duck and weave in ways that other people couldn't and he was he was the best he would just beat everyone they put in the ring with him and this style of boxing is interesting because then white boxers started copying it and when when jack johnson did it when he started ducking punches and dancing around the ring they said oh he was sneaky and cowardly and stuff but when someone like gentleman jim corbett did it they said oh look at his scientific technique so they had you know vicious double standards about you know what a, a black fighter and a white fighter would do but the other thing is that white fighters refused to fight him very often. And it was clear at some point that Johnson was good enough to fight for the heavyweight title. But the Tommy Burns, who was the, the he refused to, to defend the title against a black man. So Jack Johnson followed him around the world and appeared at all his matches and taunted him until eventually he agreed to fight him. And they fought in Australia and Jack Johnson just pummeled the guy. And he also started this thing that boxers kind of famously do of trash talking and i mean he was johnson was an angry man he was angry about the way he had been treated and he took it out on on these white fighters and he wanted them to hate him he was he really he would uh taunt them about their wives he dated white women and he would sit several of his white girlfriends in the front row and he would talk to them while he beat up these these guys like offhandedly talk to them yeah he was a trash talker he was funny he was uh and he was flamboyant he would wear fur coats and bowler hats and giant rings and pearl shirt studs and bow ties and big window pane check suits uh he was 
always had his hat at a jaunty angle and he would uh he drove a he drove a very fancy car for the time and he once was speeding and he got pulled over and the police officer said that'll be a $50 ticket and he said and he pulled out a wad of bills and handed him a hundred and, and the police officer said well I don't have change for this he said don't worry I'll be speeding on the way back too so he was he was a, a you know a, a cocky guy and he he was hated by a lot of white Americans because he made a living not only beating up white white boxers but taunting them for it and eventually people some you know someone in power decided that they had had enough of this guy and they put out a warrant for him for trafficking women basically he drove across state lines with one of his girlfriends and uh, they claimed that he was trafficking her for immoral purposes so he he ended up fleeing to Europe at that point we'll get to um, the European dandies yeah. I just wanted to ask you do you think that he was the first dandy to give sports stars more license to be a little flamboyant with their dress and their style do you think it started with him you know, I think that his attitude about really not only sort of not caring what people thought of him, but deliberately provoking them gave him this kind of don't give a damn vibe where he gave himself the license to be that way. And I think that's I don't know if that's where the tradition started, but he's a sterling example of it. Other than that, I'm sort of I don't know enough about sport to say that where exactly it intersects with fashion over time. But I definitely think that in the world of boxing, there were other well-dressed boxers like Jim Corbett, who I mentioned earlier. But Johnson was a dandy. I mean, really, through and through. And do you find that Johnson actually also influenced black style and culture at the time? Absolutely, yeah. I think that um, it's in the 19th century, you know, both before and after the Civil War, you know, things like minstrel shows were very popular, enter just regular entertainment for white people, and there were you know these sort of horrible stereotypes of of black people, and they, were, they had characters that were dandies, and the the joke was, uh, look at this black man putting on airs and thinking that he's fancy, uh, and that was like a common trope that you would see in these kinds of entertainments, uh, and Johnson suddenly comes up here, he's like he's smart, he's funny. He's a better athlete than all these other guys. He's better dressed. He's wealthier. The women love him. And he just kind of like, kicked the door open on that kind of thing. And I think I'm sure that there were lots of young black men who saw this kind of success and saw that he was doing things on his own terms. And I'm sure we're probably inspired by it or intrigued by it in some way, you know. Uh, it's it was it was it was a rare thing for for a black man in America to even come close to having the kind of money to dress and live the way he did. So, Natty, next on our list is another gentleman that I did not know, whose story is a little mysterious. This is Arthur Cravan. He was born in Switzerland in 1897. So now we're sort of moving over to Europe. We're done with the Americans, and this is really the height of the Belle Epoque, the Gilded Age. And his story really combined Europe, America, there's even a little Mexico in mm. here. So can you share a little bit about who Arthur Cravan was? Yeah, so I think the first significant thing about his biography is that he was a nephew of Wilde through Wilde's wife, Constance. And he was Anglo-French in his background, and he was one of the early Dada poets. That was his main thing. And not only that, but he was a incredible provocateur, like like Johnson. His main thing was he liked to really rile people up. And he wrote a a newsletter, you know, what would now be called a zine, where he would write all of these critiques of various art shows and under different names, even though it was all him writing it. And it, it was called Maintenant, now with an exclamation point. And he would just insult all the other artists and write these Dada poems uh, to the point where, where at one point he insulted so many people in one exhibit that uh, they were all waiting outside to try to beat him up when he arrived. But he was actually also a very big man and a boxer. And so he would fight them too. He was uh, a hoaxer. He once... Uh, he wrote an he wrote an essay saying that Oscar Wilde was still alive and had come to visit him, and people took it so seriously. The New York Times sent a reporter to interview him about it. It was 
very, very funny. He claimed that Oscar Wilde had come to visit him, and this was obviously not true. Oscar Wilde was dead um, and buried in Père Lachaise, and he claimed that Wilde uh, now had was bald with a long white beard, and that he had a tan, and that he was living in India, and and he said that if the French government would exhume Wilde's coffin, they'd find a glass jar containing manuscripts of his final comedy and his final tragedy. This was all a complete hoax, but um, this was the kind of thing that he really enjoyed. He was, in the same way that dandies often live their art, he was kind of living Dada, you know? He was latching onto that absurdity as his lived art in a way that the other Dadaist artists were, were doing with poetry or with painting or with sculpture. Well, it sounds like he was certainly pushing back barriers, and it sounds like he knew exactly what he was doing. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, he was very, he was a smart guy. I, I don't think, I think he recognized early on, probably, that he wasn't a great artist or poet himself. And if you read his poetry, it's nothing terribly exciting. But I think he realized that what he was good at was kind of provoking people and being a little bit outrageous and living in this flamboyant way and pushing back against the status quo. Do we know anything about his sense of style and his clothing? Yeah, there are. I mean, there are pictures of him. He he dressed like a sort of he he wasn't as flamboyant as someone like Johnson was. He didn't have, you know, tons of jewelry and stuff. He dressed in a kind of typically Edwardian way, but very well. I mean, they're all black and white photographs, so I don't know much about what kind of colors he wore. But he was very handsome and he was very big. He was a dresser and he was sort of known for being fastidious, uh, but he wasn't flamboyant in, the sa- in, in his dress in the same way that someone like Jack Johnson or Vanderbilt Wall was. Well, Cravan certainly sounds interesting, but then he disappeared. Yeah. What happened? Yeah. So um, when America entered the, war- the First World War, you know, remember Cravan was had already left France to avoid conscription. So suddenly he's there in America and he thinks, okay, well, maybe this isn't a safe place to be either. Maybe I'll get drafted into their army. Uh, so he and his uh, his wife, the poet Mina Loy, decided to go, that they were going to go to Argentina. And they stopped in Mexico first. And she went ahead to Argentina. And he said he was going to meet her there because um, she was the only one who could afford commercial ticket to travel. And she was pregnant. So he said, you, you go, you take a boat and I'll meet you there. He ended up getting into a boat and vanishing uh, somewhere in the Gulf of Mexico. And they never found him. But there are rumors that he lived and became a famous forger of Oscar Wilde's material. So um, in, the, in the 1920s, a man appeared starting to sell fake Oscar Wilde stuff. And he went by names like Dorian Hope, which is related to Dorian Gray, or Sebastian Hope, which is related to Sebastian Melmoth, which was uh, Oscar Wilde's pseudonym post-scandal. And uh, he so forged manuscripts and letters and stuff. And one, one buyer who met him found a man dressed like a Russian count with a magnificent fur-lined overcoat. Another man claimed that in 1919, he met a vagrant poet, derelict with a velour hat down close to his eyes, named Mr. Dorian Hope, who tried to sell him a bunch of Oscar Wilde's letters that were clearly forgeries. So some people think that this was Cravan, that he survived. It's certainly the kind of hoax that he would pull, and probably the kind of weird stuff he might be wearing if he was still lurking around New York, uh, you know, under a pseudonym. You have to say, Natty, whether he lived or just disappeared into oblivion, it's a pretty dramatic dandy end either way, right? Yeah, dandies often have um, these fantastic finishes. Uh, Cravat is one of them. Yeah, it's hard to beat that scenario, right? (laughs) Yeah. And with that, Natty and I are going to take a short break, but we'll be back to finish the story. Hello, I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, and we're back to continue the story of early 20th century dandies. Now, before we get too much farther here, I'd like to talk a little bit about the war poets. Earlier on, we talked about how influential World War I was, of course, on all aspects of society, but the war poets, people like Siegfried Sassoon, Wilfred Owen, Rupert Brooke, Now, they weren't necessarily overly stylish dressers. I think they all sort of adapted a kind of bohemian look in general. 
but they had looks. They were handsome young men, artistic ability, and certainly in the cases of Brooke and Owen, they had tragically young early deaths, which feeds very much into sort of this certainly part of the 19th century dandy aesthetic. How do the war poets stack up given some of the criteria we've been talking about about dandies? Do you think they make it? Well, I feel like, you know, Wilfred Owen and Rupert Brooke, uh, they didn't really get a chance to be dandies, you know? They were in uniform and then they were dead or they were in hospital, you know? Fashion-wise, the war poets are some of, I, I think, some of the most beautiful poets in the English language and particularly Brooke and, and Sassoon. Sassoon is very much connected to the dandyism that came after the war. He was bisexual and he ended up dating... Stephen Tennant, who was one of the very great dandies of the 1920s and part of the Bright Young People and friends with Cecil Beaton and Harold Acton and Brian Howard, who were also these kind of fabulous young dandy men who the characters in, in uh, Brideshead Revisited by Evelyn Waugh were based on. Sassoon himself was a very kind of conservative posh guy he dressed like a kind of tweedy country gentleman his memoirs were called something like confessions of a fox hunting man he was a he was kind of, he was quite butch and uh Stephen Tennant was absolutely not he was a, a gorgeous ephemeral kind of beautiful person and very precious and and with Sassoon their relationship there was this tension that Sassoon who had seen all these horrors and had so many of his friends die was very very attracted to this kind of ephemeral creature, but also had a kind of inner conflict about whether the bright young people were, were sort of too frivolous and because they hadn't seen the kind of horrors that he had seen. It was something of a generational difference almost. So I think there's definitely a connection there. There's a connection. The war poets and, and Sassoon in particular, I think, are an interesting connection between, say, the, world's, the, the world of the war, the world of Bloomsbury and the world of the bright young people. Now, Natty, for our next dandy, and boy, we've really moved into a new age um, with this one. So now we're into Adolf Luce. Yeah, Adolf Luce. Um, he's kind of a great one. Architect, style, total revolutionary. Talk, can you share about him? Yeah. So Adolf Luce uh, was Austrian, and he lived in Vienna at that very, very exciting time at the turn of the century when... Freud was there and uh, the Vienna Secession was happening with, with Gustav Klimt and the, uh, the Wiener Werkstatt was, was uh, in full swing. And as a young man, he had gone to America and worked as a brick mason. And he'd been to Chicago and St. Louis and New York, and he'd seen the kind of architecture that was happening in America at the time. So he'd seen early skyscrapers, he'd seen department stores, he'd seen the new kinds of construction that were possible. And when he came back to Europe, he found himself sort of disgusted with the 19th century love of ornament, and which he thought was excessive. And he became, and this is, this is probably what he's most famous for in terms of architecture, he became a, an advocate for simplicity in the same way that Beau Brummel had decided that men's clothing should be very, very simple and elegant. Adolf Luss believed the same thing about kind of all the applied arts and designs. Um, he believed in pairing things back. And for him, this, was, this wasn't this was a revolutionary, forward-looking thing. In, in fact, he thought this was going back to a kind of more pure architecture. So he was, he was a bit reactionary, but at the same time, he was doing something completely new. And people were scandalized by the buildings he made. They thought they, they had no personality. They thought they were sort of hideous boxes. He's often sort of thought of now as a kind of proto-Bauhaus uh, figure, but uh, he wrote a very famous essay, the most famous thing he ever wrote, called Ornament and Crime, uh, where he claimed that all of these ornamentations, everything from window boxes uh, you know, with flowers in them to, you know, gargoyles and uh, Rococo rooftops and things like that were signs of hideous vul vulgarity and decadence and uh, savagery. And he, he compared them to the kind of tattoos that criminals have. <laughs> he thought that this was uh, really awful. And he, he wrote a lot. Um, he wrote more than he actually ended up getting commissions for, for architectural commissions, but he did build a house for Tristan Zara, the Dada poet in, uh, in Paris. But yeah, he, he would write a lot of articles about men's fashion too. He hated uh, boots with, with elastic sides, which I'm currently wearing. So he was, he was reactionary, but he, in spite of that, 
was creating a new thing. There's one really funny <laughs> quote from, from his essay. It says, over the last 20 years, the doorknobs have given us first Renaissance, then Baroque, then Rococo calluses on our hands. There's only one decent door handle in Vienna accessible to me, and I make a special detour to see it every time I'm in the vicinity. It has, thank God, no ornamentation. That means it cannot be recommended highly enough at a time when every doorknob, every picture frame, every inkwell, every coal shovel, every corkscrew flaunts itself. Such restraint deserves double support. So he really believed in simplifying things to make them more elegant. And that's, you can go to the, the, what's now called the loose bar in Vienna and see one of the great examples of his architecture. It really is way ahead of its time and people weren't ready for it then. So, Nettie, do you think it's fair if we award him with our minimalist dandy award? Is that accurate? Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah. He was a, he was a radical minimalist. So, Natty, we could really discuss so many more dandy contenders. And I think we've really scoped out in our discussion today, certainly into other countries and other styles and certainly into the, the traditions of the early 20th century. And there are other factors, certainly, besides clothes and style here. But we're really going to arrive at our final dandy for today. And he's an Italian, Gabriella D'Annunzio. And D'Annunzio's probably the most problematic of all of them, even though some of them you could certainly argue were problematic we've talked about so far. But he was also pretty fascinating. So can you share some of your thoughts on D'Annunzio and why you added him to the list as our final dandy? Yeah. Uh, so Gabriel D'Annunzio was a Italian decadent poet, and he got his start writing at the same time as people like Wilde, and he was famously decadent not only in his writing but in his lifestyle, and people were sort of scandalized by it. He was he was not a classically attractive man. He was short and bald and kind of odd-looking, but he was an incredible flamboyant dresser, and he was the lover of the most famous beauties of Europe at the time, and he lived in this big grand house, and you can go to his old house and see all of his lovely button boots lined up and stuff like that. But he was a very, very bombastic, nationalistic Italian. And he was what what we would probably call a, a proto-fascist. Um, Mussolini was certainly inspired by him. And uh, he championed the idea of a return to the greatness of, of Rome and old Italy. And he, during the First World War, uh, became an aviator. And along with dropping bombs, he dropped leaflets of his poetry. <laughs> I mean, he, he, he had a massive ego and he sort of wanted to be, he wanted to be a great Italian hero along the lines of Garibaldi. And one of the ways he did this was after the First World War, there was a lot of disputed territory, particularly on the border of Aust the Austro-Hungarian Empire and Italy and what became Yugoslavia. And there was a town called Fiume that was sort of contested. And this was when America and Wilson was trying to make sure that people had the right to self-determination in, in their places where they were the majority. And some Italians decided that Fiume needed to be an Italian city. And D'Annunzio saw this as his opportunity to be a great hero. So he riled up a whole bunch of his fans and followers and marched into the city, which was already occupied by the Italian army, and uh, basically took it over for a few months. And it was kind of absurd, but he would, he would print stamps with his face on them and uh, go up on balconies and give speeches, really over-the-top, dandy, <laughs> decadent kind of speeches. The, he would have you know people marching in dress uniform all over the place. Uh, he would have big parades and, and parties. And basically, the town just ceased to function. There was no commerce left. I mean, they, they weren't doing anything other than putting on the fabulous D'Annunzio show. And it, eventually, even the people who were excited about the idea of Fiume becoming an Italian place realized that this was this is not going to happen with this kind of a lot of other people looked at him and thought he was kind of a clown and he would yeah he would stand up on balconies and read poetry to people as they passed by and uh, eventually he became kind of an embarrassment and and uh, they managed to get him out of there but he was as far as I know I mean he was at least the first dandy to kind of try to stage a coup of some kind but he had yeah I think funnily enough I think there uh, there's You'll notice a lot of dictators have a little kind of flash of dandyism in them and a lot of would-be dictators, or at least they have a kind of flamboyance to them. And they often famously have, you know, crazy wardrobes and palaces and really over-the-top stuff. And D'Annunzio was definitely one of those kind of guys. Yeah. I think if he hadn't made this 
sort of ridiculous error in trying to capture this rather unimportant little town, he might have actually had a, a bigger political career and could have been uh, an alternative to Mussolini in, in the, the eyes of the fascists because he was considered such a, a nationalistic hero. Now, D'Annunzio died really just before World War II. So, Natty, what happened to dandyism into the Second World War years and say even after that into the 1950s? Did it die out or stay strong? It didn't die out, but I don't think it ever does. But I think that the massive mobilization and production involved in World War II and its scale and the amount of science and innovation that was happening during that time, it was not a, a dandy kind of world to live in. There was rationing everywhere. It would have been seen as probably very unpatriotic to be walking around in you know, fine, fine clothing all the time. So I think that at least during the Second World War, you don't see a lot of dandyism. Afterwards, there are some people who kind of pop up again, people like uh, Lucius Beebe, who is a, a writer and a society writer who was very, very famous in his time. And he lived on a, in a private train car with his partner, Charles Clegg. And he wrote about railroads and all sorts of things. And he was a fabulous guy. And so people start reappearing after the Second World War. But I think the Second World War was just such a massive economic and cultural production in a way that the first wasn't, that it kind of consumed all of the surplus resources that might be necessary for dandyism to flourish. Now, I must ask you, this is a question we, we danced around a little bit at the very, very beginning. But do you add a category for a female dandy? Now, fully realizing this could be an entirely other show, and maybe it will be. Can you talk about that? Can you have a female dandy? Sure. So this is, yeah, this is a question we, I mean, this is one of the questions that Rose and I, when we did these books, got every single place we went is, can there be a female dandy? Can a woman be a dandy? And at first, I think we were very kind of conservative about it. We said, no, 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 dandy is a gendered term like uh, like vixen or, or something like that or, or diva. But now, of course, diva is not a gendered term anymore. <laughs> so why does dandy have to be? And there have been other attempts to come up with words to describe the female equivalent of a dandy, uh, like Quaintrell, which never caught on because it just, just doesn't really trip off the tongue like dandy does. I think that anyone can have dandyism as a character trait. I think that culturally, until pretty recently, women were always expected to dress nicely and to look clean and neat and put together. Whereas men didn't always have that expectation. And it's certainly men didn't have expectation of dressing up and being flamboyant. That was, that was putting your head above the parapet a little bit. Whereas now everything's casual. It's kind of remarkable if anyone puts in that extra effort to dress up. So I think definitely anyone can, uh, let's say, possess dandyism or be infected by dandyism. The extent to which I would label them a dandy, I think, uh, depends on, I don't know, how uh, <laughs> how intrigued they make me when I meet them. <laughs> dandy is not the gendered term that I thought it once was. I think that we can open it up. You know, it's really interesting when we look at just the, the gentleman of style that we've talked about today. Boy, have we expanded out this definition from where we started in our first show. Yeah. These gentlemen certainly had a sense of style. They certainly pushed back barriers, probably good and bad, mm -hmm. right? I mean, what yeah. would you say is the through line that connects them all that we've talked about today? Can you even yeah, generalize? I think, no, there's definitely, it's, again, I think it goes back to that through line of that all of them really believed that elegance and an artful life was really important and was more than just a superficial aspect, that it was an important part of the world. I mean, whether it's loose, you know, he would probably be horrified by the amount of graffiti and, uh, you know, advertising that's everywhere. There's all these sorts of things. I think that they really believed that beauty was worth pursuing. And in some cases, they pursued it down some dark paths. And in other cases, they created wonderful things. But I think that's, that's, it's always going to go back to that. It's the, the obsession with elegance. 
So, Natty, I always have to ask my very favorite question here on The Gilded Gentleman. So, of all the dandies that we've talked about today, Beer Bomb and Cravan and Jackson and Luce and all of these people, Denunzio, who would you like to sit down with, perhaps <laughs> over a good brandy for a chat? And, and what would you ask them? And what response do you think you'd get? Oh, God, that's such a good question. I mean, I... I think, honestly, sitting down with Max Beerbaum would probably be the most pleasant and enjoyable because he would have great stories and he was a sweet uh, raconteur. I would love to sit down with Cravan because he was so weird um, and I don't know how he might behave. I don't think I would need to sit down with Denuncio. And I feel like Luce might be a bit hard to get along with. But I think I'd really like to meet Jack Johnson if I could. I mean, that would be... Really exciting because he, I think, was such a trailblazer and brave person. His dandyism was a incredibly dangerous and brave way of being for him. And, you know, I think that's a really interesting way, Natty, to end the show as we start to think about dandyism and what has it meant. And it's introducing the element of bravery, mm. right? Yeah. Maybe that's a starting point for another show. Right, let's see. <laughs> so, Natty, just as before, you have certainly given me and my listeners such a fascinating and really unique insight into just what dandyism was, could be, is, and so many expressions of it. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. And to my listeners, I encourage you to follow Natty and his style on his website, nattyadams.com, and to sign up for his newsletter and perhaps have him make you the perfect suit. Thank you for joining me for another episode of The Gilded Gentleman. The Gilded Gentleman is produced by Bowery Boys Media, and this episode was edited and produced by Kieran Gannon. To stay up to date on upcoming podcasts, special tours, and events, make sure to sign up for the Gilded Gentleman monthly newsletter, and you can do that on thegildedgentleman.com. I invite my listeners to become patrons of the show at patreon.com slash thegildedgentleman. Your support helps me to manage the costs of researching, writing, creating, and producing the show. I couldn't do it without you. And I'll see you soon. After all, what's life without a little glint of gold? Gold.